Okay, now, we've been going through a study here. What's the book? Romans. Anyone know what chapter we're in? We're still in chapter eight, right smack dab in the middle of Romans chapter eight. And today we're gonna be journeying through verse 18 all the way to 25. And some of you are like, whew, that's a short section. And that makes you happy, right? So for starters here, I'm gonna read that passage of scripture and then we'll kind of get right into our discussion. We're gonna discern what Paul was saying to the early church in Rome and what that means for us today in our church and our society. You guys ready? Okay, let's go. Verse 18, Romans chapter 8, verse 18 says, I consider that our present sufferings, uh-oh, can y'all say uh-oh? He says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to this present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption to son- for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Let me say that again. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Church, would you pray with me? God, you are so good. Your word is wonderful. And God, as we walk through the the middle part here of Romans chapter eight, God, I pray that you would kind of just download unto us whatever it is that you wanna say to us this morning. God, that your word would become alive to us. God, that you would just kind of convict us today, that you'd speak to our very hearts and our soul. God, you'd wake us up. God, today we push to the side our troubles. We push to the side our concerns and we focus on what you want to say. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's do this. So I'm not sure if you've noticed, but when when reading through these letters by the Apostle Paul, it seems like when he's writing, he likes to ask questions based upon what he's saying. And and, and it's kind of an interesting way of communicating. I don't know about you, but when I'm talking, I don't ask these questions random questions all of the time to try to make like a point, right? And maybe some of you do, but Paul does this in a a really interesting way. It almost makes me kind of think that as he's writing, maybe he has someone transcribing for him. And and, and as as they're transcribing for him, maybe they're so captivated by what he's saying that they're asking questions. And maybe that prompts Paul to kind of answer the questions. I don't actually know how this all works. I wasn't there, nor were you. But I do kind of wonder like, why is he right in this weird way? However, in the same time, I love the way that he writes because it provokes thought, right? It makes you kind of think, right? Um, and and I, I absolutely love the way that, that, that he writes and the way that it kind of prompts my brain to kind of think through these issues. Now, now Paul made a statement in our last study earlier in chapter eight, which I'd like to go back to. It's actually just rewinding two verses, uh, and that is in Romans chapter eight, verses 16 to 17. Perhaps you remember, it says this. Paul says, the spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Now, as we kind of leave this passage here up on the screen, 
just for a moment, can I call your attention to kind of the connection between uh, th- those verses between suffering and inheritance or glory? Did you catch that kind of last little bit there? Where he says, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. And then he says, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. What an interesting passage. Right, this is something the Bible kind of talks about often throughout Scripture, making a connection between suffering and glory. Jesus himself, for example, went through suffering for the glory, right? And guess how it happens for you and I? Suffering, then glory. And oh, how I wish we could bypass the suffering part, right? I wish we could just kind of squeak by without that kind of part of things, right? But it doesn't happen that way, does it? Right? In fact, uh, you might remember Peter says something interesting along these lines about suffering. Let me show you. This is a passage that you're probably not going to find written on your favorite mug. Right? This is not one of those passages that you're going to find on like a notebook that you can buy at like the Bible store or something like that. Right? It says in 1 Peter 2 verse 20, 21, it says, To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Church, would you say this with me? To this, you were called, stop, a little bit more boldness, okay? It's okay, we're suffering, let's do it boldly. (laughs) To this, you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. An example of what? Suffering. You probably didn't realize this when you signed up for the whole Christian thing. Peter says he left you an example to suffer like him. Why? Because first come the suffering, and then comes the glory. It's death before the resurrection. We know this story. Jesus exemplified it for us. Now, that's not to say that we all suffer in the same way, do we? Right? We each have our own path. We, reach ha- we each have our own experiences. Many of us have different forms of suffering. For example, I don't think that there's many of us, and I hope none of us, have to suffer in prison for our faith. Right? Something that Paul did. And there's people on this planet right now who are in prison for their faith who have to endure terrible situations. That's not a form of suffering that I've had to deal with, and I hope that's not a form of suffering that I have to deal with in the future, but it's possible. There are also different levels of suffering, but all of us suffer in some sort of capacity living life on this earth. And maybe for some of you, as I say this, even now you're kind of like getting flashbacks, or maybe it's not even flashbacks, it's like things that are happening right now, our present sufferings, right? We all suffer. We suffer the results of sin, We suffer sickness. We suffer loss. By the way, everyone in this room has experienced some sort of loss, probably someone that we love. And sometimes it's not to death either. There are other ways you can lose someone and how heartbreaking it is to lose someone, especially someone that you love so dearly. And then we suffer different levels of persecution, don't we? Right? Maybe this isn't a super common thing around here, but you've probably, at some point in your life, suffered a level of persecution, perhaps a great level. Maybe you have family members who don't talk to you anymore, don't talk to you the same way, don't have that same level of openness. Maybe it's that job that you didn't get because they knew about your faith and they knew about your terrible Sunday habits, right? We all suffer. This life is full of suffering. And it kind of begs the question, which I think that Paul is anticipating here, is it worth it? Think that through. Ask yourself, right? You live a life. You have your troubles. You have your problems. Is it worth it? Paul would have had to ask this question. Is all this suffering that you and I endure in this life worth it? 
So that's where Paul begins this section of Romans in verse 18, and he says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Not to us, in us. By the way, this is a statement from experience. When Paul says our present, our present sufferings cannot even compare, we have to remember that this was a man who suffered. This was a man who endured. This is not written by somebody who had it easy. This is not a casual statement about suffering in any which way. This comes from a man who suffered for the sake of the gospel greatly. And eventually, according to church history, had his head cut off by the Romans. Who's he writing to? The Romans, right? And yet, he was a man who could say with confidence, I think that this is written with confidence, whatever sufferings we go through in this present life doesn't hold a candle to the glory. Nothing in this life could possibly trump what God has in store for you and I. That's why it's called our hope of glory. In fact, look at what Paul writes in verse 19. He says, for the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. What an interesting thought, hey? He says, creation waits with eager expectation. He doesn't necessarily tell us how, how creation waits. It's kind of one of those mysteries, I guess, we don't really know. But, but, Paul, but Paul does kind of explain why creation is eagerly waiting. That's for you and I the sons and the daughters of God to be revealed. And notice what he says in verse 20. Here's kind of more of why it waits. He says, for creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. What an incredible passage. And there's two key phrases that I kind of want to zoom in on here. If you're the kind of person who underlines things or maybe highlights things or circles things in your Bible, these would be those things. Maybe you've got a notes app in your phone. Write these in there. This is, this is good. The two phrases that we're going to kind of zoom in on here are, are subjected to frustration. Number one, subjected to frustration. Number two, bondage to decay. And I think if we were to kind of sit on these two phrases for a little bit, I think there'd be an unlocking as time went on to kind of information and, and explanation about the world in which we live in, the troubles in which we go through, the hardships, the trials, the struggles that we deal with on a daily basis. And he says here that all of creation was literally subjected to frustration. Think about that for a second. What's the frustration? Well, upon a brief look into kind of the original language of, of Greek here for this portion of scripture, the word that Paul uses for frustration is speaking to meaninglessness, right? A pointlessness or even a uselessness. Meaning that what Paul is suggesting is that world, that our world that we live in has been subjected to meaninglessness, uselessness, pointlessness. And so all of a sudden the word frustration makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? Right, by the way, in the Old Testament, Solomon actually wrote about a similar meaninglessness, and I want to touch on this. We'll come back to Romans, but we're going to jump first to Ecclesiastes. If you've got your Bibles with you, we're in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. This is Solomon speaking. He says, so I hated life. Bold start. Because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. Right? This takes me back to like pulling weeds, and you know that they're just coming back in a couple days, right? So I hated life. 
We've been there. Because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it meaningless, a chasing after the wind. I hated all these things I had toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether that person will be wise or if they'll be foolish. Yet they will have control over all the fruit of my toil to which I've poured my effort and skill under the sun. This too is meaningless. He's kind of complaining, isn't he? He says, so my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor under the sun. For a person may labor with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, and then they must leave all they own to another who's not toiled for it. This too is meaningless and a great misfortune. What do people get for the toil and anxious striving with which they labor under the sun? All their days, their work is grief and pain. Even at night, their minds do not rest. This too is meaningless. If you're unaware, Solomon here is son to David, who was the wisest man to ever walk the earth. And we know this because it's documented in the Bible that God gave him and kind of downloaded this wisdom to Solomon. And here he's taking notice of the meaninglessness, the pointlessness of the way things are. Can you hear his frustration? Right? You can hear it loud and clear, can't you? And if you've ever felt badly for complaining about how things felt meaningless, just take note of Solomon's words. Maybe you're not a complainer. Maybe you're just very wise. (laughs) I'm joking. (laughs) Please. (laughs) I find this fascinating, by the way. During my study here, you know how the Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew and then the New Testament was written in Greek? Well, at one particular point in time, uh, the the Greek language became uh, the most popular, the most spoken language uh, on the planet, right? Uh, And so they actually had the Old Testament kind of translated into Greek. And and they did this in a funny fashion. They changed some things they probably shouldn't have. But but, um, this kind of Old Testament translated into Greek was called the Septuagint. And in the Septuagint, the Hebrew word meaningless in Ecclesiastes is actually translated into the same Greek word for frustration out of Romans chapter 8, verse 20. Same word. And I find this super interesting. So essentially, Solomon says, I looked at life and it was frustrating to me. It's meaningless. It's pointless. It's filled with purposefulness, purposelessness. It's empty. These words resonate with me. And I think they resonate with a lot of people. I don't know about you, but this helps me understand why people are so incredibly hopeless in our culture today. I'm sure you've noticed, like I, that people in their natural state are pretty hopeless. And and I think I understand a good reason why. See, living in a world that's meaningless and frustrating for people, it has an effect on their hearts. And it's clear to me that this frustration brings about a hopelessness. By the way, who's been there? Like you don't, you're not just thinking about other people, you know this, you've been there. A number of us. And then what do we do with that hopelessness, right? Well, there's an attempt that's made to fill the void. You know exactly what I'm talking about. Maybe we begin searching for love in all the wrong places. Perhaps a person might find drinking alcohol in excess to be, to kind of have a numbing effect that's comforting in contrast to their life before, their sober life that was full of frustration, strain, and pain. Perhaps a person turns to drugs, right? Searching for that new high to replace the feeling of futility with with, uh, with a kind of a, a, newness of, a newness of thought that comes from distorting the very chemicals within their brain in such a way that they might feel an unnatural feeling. 
right? Because life's so futile otherwise. Life can be so empty otherwise, and they're desperate, right? Hopelessness leads to a state of desperation, to self-medicate. And it's our sinful flesh that has hundreds of terrible ways for us to self-medicate, doesn't it? Right, and produce false feelings of hope within our lives. Let me say that again. Our sinful flesh has hundreds of terrible ways for us to self-medicate and produce false feelings of hope within our lives. But let me say this. As Christians, we need not self-medicate. We need not yield to the temptations of the evil one. Why? Let's see what the Bible says. Psalm 62, 5, verse 8. Five to, or Psalm 62, 5 to 8 says this. It says, yes, my soul, find rest in God. Actually, church, we're gonna read this together. Can you read this with me? It says, yes, my soul, find rest in God. My hope comes from him. Truly, he is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will not be shaken. My salvation and my honor depend on God. He is my mighty rock, my refuge, Trust in him at all times, you people. Pour out your hearts to him, for God is our refuge. Our hope is found in him. He is our mighty rock. He is our salvation. He is our fortress. He is our refuge. May I direct you to another passage out of 1 Peter. 1 Peter 1, 13 to 15 says, Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all that you do. Our hope is found in Jesus Christ. When we're feeling hopeless, we don't have to self-medicate anymore. We don't have to come up with a solution on our own. Our flesh might want to, our flesh might have some great sounding ideas about how we could fix this situation. But since we believe, that means that we've been exposed to a knowledge that there is hope. Who here has been exposed to that knowledge of hope? And that changes everything, doesn't it? It's, it's, it's. See, Christians can feel hopeless, right? But it's just that feeling. It's no longer our reality. Am I making sense? As Christians, there's been a revelation of truth. And now we know that we know that we know that we know there is hope, right? Our label's been changed. Our ownership's been changed. Our world's been turned upside down. We see things differently now that we have hope. The whole game is changed. And our hope is found only in Jesus Christ. But each of us knows someone, don't we? In whom we love, perhaps, a family member, a friend, a neighbor, a coworker, who doesn't know Jesus, right? They haven't discovered our great hope. hope and, and I can understand their hopelessness. And I'm sure that you can understand their hopelessness as well, right? We get it. It makes sense to me. When Paul says that create, says the creation that you and I are living in has been subjected to frustration, I know what he's talking about. And it's passages like this that kind of help us to form a biblical worldview. You see, in our culture, there's a glorification of happiness. Have you noticed this before? Right? You be you, I'll be me. Right? As long as we're both happy, does that make you happy? If it doesn't make you happy, would you consider changing? 
because you might as well. That's our goal. This is kind of what our culture likes to sell us. Let go of what doesn't make you happy because happiness is the number one pursuit in life for many, many people, to which I'd respond, how hopeless. If you really think about it, how hopeless can you get? Our world isn't necessarily a happy place. And I don't mean to be depressing this morning. I like to have a good time just like you like to have a good time, right? But, but even Jesus says in the book of John, John chapter 16, verse 33, he says, I have told you those things so that you may have peace. In this world, you will have what? Trouble, but take heart. In other words, have hope. I have overcome the world. Jesus is our reason for hope. He's the reason for us to take heart. Jesus has overcome the hopelessness of our world. Back to Romans chapter eight. Remember that second phrase, bondage to decay? What an interesting choice of words, right? Just think about that. Our world has been given over to bondage to decay. And this kind of got me thinking, Scientists have even come up for a law for this. It's called the second law of thermodynamics. Don't ask me like follow-up questions on this, by the way. (laughs) The second law of thermodynamics simply says this. All matter is in a constant state of breaking down. Right? We, We know that. Right? We've experienced that. Even when we get out of the bed in the morning, right? Right? Where do we feel? We feel it in our bones. Some of us more than others. (laughs) But it's not just our bodies, is it? Right? The world we live in has been given over to a bondage to decay. Let me show you something from 2 Corinthians, and I think this is why Paul wrote this. He says, therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we're wasting away. Think about that. Though outwardly we're wasting away, yet inwardly we're being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. I'm going to read verse 17 again, just focus on this. It says, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Our hope is not found in what we can see with our physical eyes. Our hope is found in what we can only see with our spiritual hearts. Our hope is found in the promise of God's word and the assurance of his promises, the past, present, and coming glory of the Lord. That's where our hope is found. That's where we place our hope. Did you know that when we get to heaven, we're going to have new bodies? Right? (laughs) There we go. There we go. (laughs) There's some of us in this room that are young enough that they're like, what do you mean, new bodies? This one works fine. But for others, we'd understand (laughs) the decay factor, right? Like this old decaying one is going to be completely restored. Have you ever heard yourself wishing that you could have the body of your youth? Right? Wishing that you could be young again? Right? Let me say this. The glory days of your peak physical health are not behind you. Pun intended. It will be just that. Glorious. And it's not just because of our new bodies, is it? Right? Heaven is going to be filled with many wonders. Right? Think of all the wondrous reasons why heaven will be so glorious. It's not just new bodies, right? I think one of the greatest reasons is there will be no decay. Imagine the implications of that, no deterioration. That's something to look forward to, isn't it? So Paul says, don't lose heart. 
unlike the world that loses heart every day. And he uses some fascinating language here. He says, though outwardly we're wasting away, yet inwardly we're being renewed day by day. This is something that I've like wanted to download as like a vision for my own life. And like, okay, I know that things are gonna be a certain way in the way that I live my life, but that's just gonna be like outwardly. And I don't wanna get focused on those things. I care way more about what God's doing the inside of my heart. And so just know that as your pastor, I'm focused on this. I'm wondering, okay, God, what's it like for you to renew me every day? I don't wanna get distracted by the outward stuff. Though I might be wasting away, though things might get challenging, though I might get sick, though I might break my bones, I'm focused on what's happening inwardly. And he also says, he says, our troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory. Achieving for us an eternal glory. Our troubles what interesting language, mind-boggling. This kind of puts a whole new perspective on hardships in life, doesn't it? You see, without Jesus, our troubles or our problems, our losses, our hardships, what do they do? Well, they discourage us. They leave us feeling empty. They make us feel lacking. They cause us to lose heart. That would be normal for you to experience a hardship and to feel discouraged. It would be normal for you to kind of lose heart in the face of difficulty. I understand why people who don't know Jesus would be looking to fill the void. I get it. It makes a lot of sense to me. I understand why people might be looking for love or validation in all of the wrong places. I understand why someone might turn to drugs or alcohol as a mask. I understand why others might choose fame or money. I understand why our world is obsessed with the pursuit of happiness. But church, let me say this. Don't pursue these mere band-aids. Pursue hope. Hope that is only found in Jesus. Hope in the promises of God. In the midst of this meaninglessness, in the midst of this decay, there is still hope. There always has been. There always will be. But Paul says their hope is unseen. Did you notice how in verse 22, he actually uses a picture of childbirth? I think this is kind of funny, but it makes sense to me. He says, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And this to me is probably one of the strangest metaphors that Paul uses, but it does make sense if you think about it. As you all know, at least I sure hope that you know, babies initially grow inside their mommy's bellies, right? Under normal circumstances, as they're growing within their mom's belly, you can't see the baby, but you know it's coming. Right? You know that over the course of time, what's going to happen, and you will eventually see the baby. Right Now, I've never been pregnant, and I don't plan on it anytime soon, <laughs> but there's, there's a point in a pregnancy, and some of you would know this well, that there's a season of groaning. Right? Some of you know exactly what I mean, and there's these signs during the pregnancy that take place to kind of communicate the changes that are taking place within a woman's body leading up to the eventual birth of their child. And continue with the metaphor here, there's signs in all of creation. He expresses that all of creation is groaning in the pains of childbirth. Isn't that the strangest kind of word picture, by the way? I won't dwell on it too long. In verse 23, he says it's more than just creation. He says, not only so, but we ourselves. He's talking about believers here. And that's why he defines us as who have the first fruits of the Spirit. He says, we we too, he says, we groan inwardly. Have you groaned inwardly recently? I sure have. <laughs> we groan inwardly. 
there's an inward groaning. Who can relate, right? It doesn't come out of your mouth. It's just in your heart, right? You're not verbally complaining to your spouse or to your friends, to your coworkers, but it's in there. It exists, this kind of silent inward groaning that's in your spirit. See, being a part of this world and all the frustrations that it brings, kind of wishing for it to be over. And not in the sense of like, I just want this to be done with, but more in the sense of, I want the newness, right? I want the life, I want the vitality, I want the strength, I want the promise. So Paul says that we inward, inwardly we groan as we wait eagerly for these things to take place, which he describes as our adoption to sonship and the redemption of our bodies. We're looking to be set free. We want to be set free. And then Paul says, look at verse 24. He says, for in this hope, we were saved. Say that with me. For in this hope, we were saved. Say it like you mean it. For in this hope, we were saved. You see, the essence of the gospel is bound in the hope that we have in Jesus. In this hope we were saved. The salvation of our souls is not just, okay, my sins are forgiven and I'm gonna live this way and that's great and that's wonderful. There's so much more. There's this hope that you have, that I have, that we will get to be with the Lord one day and that when he returns, we will receive our new physical bodies and corruption will pass away. Futility will be no more. And Paul reminds us here in verse 24, he says, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? Think about that for a sec, right? You see a kid who's got like a shiny new bicycle. They don't hope for a new bicycle anymore, right? Why? They've already got it, right? If I'm driving a snazzy new like sports car, I'm not hoping to get another new sports car, right? I've already got it. We hope for what we don't have, but we know we're going to get our hope is in the eternal promises of God through what Jesus did on the cross. Church, would you say that with me? Our hope is in the eternal promises of God through what Jesus did on the cross. Do you believe that? Do you really, really believe that? This is the difference, by the way, between what the world defines as hope and what you and I define as hope. Right, with, with, with the world, hope is a pipe dream. I hope that I hope that I hope that I hope that the BC Lions win the Grey Cup, right? That's a pipe dream. That's the way that our world hopes. But we hope differently. <laughs> I'm not from around here. <laughs> our hope is in the eternal promises of God through what Jesus did on the cross. And that's why Paul says in verse 25, he says, but if we hope for what we do not have, or pardon me, for if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently, right? Eagerly, as he mentioned before, but patiently. Why? Because we know that it's coming, right? Now, I wanna close here with a wonderful passage from 1 John that speaks of the benefit of our hope, a wonderful benefit. First John 3, 2 to 3, John writes and he says, Dear friends, now we are children of God. Who here is a child of God? Okay, then pay attention. Now we are children of God, and what we, oh, pardon me, and what we will be has not yet been known, made known. So what we will be has not yet been revealed, right? But here's what we do know. We know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him. Why? For we shall see him as he is, all who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. Think about that for a sec. 
John is saying that our hope in the Lord does more than just giving us this confidence that we know that these things are gonna take place, right? It's much more than just an assurance of what's to come. Do you notice in that last line? It actually has a purifying effect in our lives. When our hope is founded in Jesus Christ, it actually changes the way that we live our lives. Shocker, but the Christian faith exercised in, 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 in faithfulness changes the way that you live your life, right? With the assurance of what to come, what's to come, and, and a hope for that, that changes how you execute your day-to-day. That changes how you look at people in your life. That changes how you view yourself in the mirror. And we're purified. It has a purifying effect in our lives. And it's because our hope is in him. And that hope is real, it's tangible, and it changes us constantly on the inside. And that's how you and I are transformed, by the way. That's how we're transformed in the inside every day as we look to him in hope. Now there's gonna come a day when we get to see him, when we get to come face to face with Jesus Christ. And then that change will be completed, right? But right now we're changing incrementally. I know I wish that we could fast track this and we could kind of make all of that change happen all at once, right? But it changes incrementally. At least I hope that we're changing incrementally as we keep our eyes fixed on who? On Jesus. He's changing us. He's transforming us into this ever-increasing glory. And you and I can't see it on the outside. This is not a change that you'll recognize in the mirror. Perhaps you might see it in your eyes, but it's something that happens on the inside. We know what's happening. There's this work going on in our hearts that we cannot deny, that we're being formed into the image of Jesus Christ. And that changes how you live your life in almost every which way. Right? Once you have Jesus inside of you, once you know who you belong to, that changes the way you live your lives. By the way, parents, it changes the way that you parent. Grandparents, it changes the way that your grandparents, right? At work, as, as you are employed, it changes the way that you approach like your work life. If you're married today, it changes the way that you treat your spouse, right? It changes the way that you walk past people on the street, whether they're rich or whether they're poor. You now have a new perspective on life because you've been changed. You've been transformed, right? It comes with a responsibility. Now, because of the spirit in you, there's a bit of a work task at hand where you can't just kind of walk through life complaining and muttering about all these frustrations that take place, you have hope, right? And what are you going to do with this hope? Are you just going to store it up for yourself? Are you just going to have this assurance in your heart that I'm taking care of, right? I, I said the sinner's prayer, and so I'm good to go, right? Our hope has purpose, and that purpose is not just for ourselves. That is something we share. Being formed in the image of Jesus Christ is an exciting thing, but as you probably have figured out, it's kind of challenging to love like Jesus, to act like Jesus, to have an attitude like Jesus. I didn't say it was gonna be easy. Mind you, it is exciting. Now, as I mentioned before, there's gonna come a day when we'll eventually see him. We'll be face to face with him. And on that day, we will behold him face to face. And it'll be kind of this astonishing moment, I imagine. Perhaps you've imagined it too. And the Bible says we're going to be like him. We're gonna be transformed and the completion of that work will have taken place. Isn't that amazing? I think it's amazing. 
I'm gonna call our, our worship team and our prayer team forward this morning. So you see, we kind of brought it around. We, we started off a bit depressing, right? We are talking about corruption, if you can remember. We were talking about meaninglessness and pointlessness and the futility. But we have so much to hope for. Let me just say this, as you leave this place today, this room that I think is filled with hope, this gathering that's filled with hope, you're gonna find a world of hopelessness, right? Who knows this, by the way? Who's very familiar with the fact that you're about to enter a world of hopelessness? You all do. You're gonna rub shoulders with people who are hopeless, family, friends, strangers, neighbors, coworkers, and you're, gonna, you're just gonna come face to face with hopeless situations and hopeless people. Remember this. You understand exactly why they're hopeless. It makes sense, right? You understand exactly what's going on. You're not surprised when they say things like, hey, on Friday night, we're going out drinking. We're gonna get hammered. Do you wanna come? Right, you understand what it is that you're doing, right? You understand why it is that they complain about their boss. You understand why it is that they curse their government. You understand why it is that they get so mad whenever someone cuts them off in their car. Right, you know what's going on in their heart. You know what they're lacking. You know what they're missing. So you're not gonna look down on them, right? You're gonna understand that this is the response of a hopeless person. You can tell them that there's hope for this life and it goes beyond this life. It goes way beyond this life, doesn't it? And that hope is only found in the person of Jesus Christ. And that is the wonderful and glorious promise of the word of God. And it's our responsibility. We can tell them what to do with their hopelessness. We can tell them that there's an alternative. We can tell them that we found this great hope. We can explain to them that, yes, I understand that you're living in a place of hopelessness, but you have to understand that where that hopelessness leads and that hopelessness leads to death. Right, and it's not that we're coming along with like this death threat, we're handing death threats around, we're explaining to people what the gospel is all about because the gospel is all about life. And if you say the gospel is all about life, that means that the alternative is all about death. Right, so we're just getting to the point. And you gotta say to someone, like if you really are a Christian, if you really have been changed, if you really are being transformed, then you have to kind of say to someone, you know what, this, this life that you're living, that doesn't lead to life, that doesn't lead to joy. I understand the frustration that you're feeling. I understand what you're going through. I understand this hopelessness that you're experiencing on a daily basis. I understand that it's getting worse, that you feel like you're deteriorating. But let me tell you about the hope I found in Jesus. Let me tell you how you could be changed. Let me tell you how your life could look different. There is a joy that can be had, and that joy is so much better than any happiness that you could ever touch. By the way, church, remember this. We don't become immune to suffering just because we're full of hope. It's that we see things with a whole new light. We don't get a free pass on suffering, but we have a completely different mindset about its impact on our lives. We understand that it can only impact us for so long. You ever heard the phrase like, this too shall pass? That's a very real thought, a very real thought that our hope is eternal. It's not about our present sufferings. We have a whole new mindset. We understand that it can impact us for only so long, and then we're set free. 
So church, if there's any of you and they need prayer for anything, would you come forward at this time? Brian, I or a member of our prayer team would love to pray with you. This is one of the most important times in our service at Gateway. So if you need prayer, would you please come? If you're watching online, would you please let us know what's going on and we can pray with you. This is a huge part about what we do on a week-to-week basis. Church, would you stand?